Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. I'm joined by Real Clear Defense contributor John Waters. John, good to have you here. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Today, we look at the threat of war in Ukraine. In recent months, Russia has staged 100,000 troops on its border. And with major land, air, and naval forces involved, Russia is staging a massive military exercise in neighboring Belarus. U.S. intelligence reports that Russia could invade Ukraine, quote, at any time. The threat to Ukraine is being taken by the U.S. and other members of NATO as a major challenge, even though Ukraine is not a member. Will Russia invade? And if so, what would that look like? What are the risks to Russia in attempting to hold a nation like Ukraine? To find out, we are speaking with Dr. Ben Conable, a retired Marine Corps intelligence officer. He's a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council, the director of research at the DT Institute, and adjunct professor of security studies at Georgetown University. He's also a contributor to Real Clear Defense with an article titled, Troop to Task, A Russian Invasion of Ukraine. Ben Conable, welcome to Hot Wash. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Ben, in the article, you talk about different possible invasion scenarios and what the costs and risks to Russia and Putin would be. Walk us through what you mean by that. Yeah, my focus is really on the occupation that would follow an invasion. There have been a lot of terrific analyses across the defense community on what an invasion might look like. Um, there are usually scenarios range from uh, a limited incursion in southeast Ukraine, um, down in the Donbass region, seizing uh, territory around the separatist republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, or something a little more extreme, uh, going all the way uh, to the west of Kiev, which is the capital, which would require the Russians to seize a lot more territory. Um, And then there are some who believe that the Russians might go all the way, take all of Ukraine um, and even parts of Moldova as well. So that starts out the scenario. And then what I do is pick a kind of middle ground uh, where they take a line uh, running generally north-south in the city of Kharkiv, which is to the east of Kiev. So kind of biting off about a third of the country and then go into detail and describe what that would actually require in terms of security, counterinsurgency, um, and border defense. So I feel like a lot of the media discussion of Ukraine talks as if there was this 2014 incursion, this 2014 attack on Crimea. And there was some sort of interim period, and now there's a threat of a new war. But essentially, that fighting has continued through pretty much through that entire time. Um, talk about what the battle lines are like in Donbas. It's been you know it's been compared to a World War One style uh, trench engagement where you know advances are measured in yards. Um, basically, a, a stalemate waiting for this to happen. Talk about how that changes the calculation or what's what's been going on in the Donbass in that intervening time. Yeah, it's an apt analogy. I think, you know, the Crimea is stable. Uh, the Russians have secured it and illegally annexed it. Um, so really, the concentration of activity is in those two republics or the, excuse me, the Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk, these separatist oblasts um, in the southeast. They really only control about a third to a half of each of those they're, they're generally equivalent to states. Um, that, and it's a separatist uh, movement backed directly by the Russian state. The separatists have their own armed forces, but it's very clear that the Russians are providing them with all of their arms and equipment. 
uh, with training. And uh, in many cases, they've been spotted providing direct support. So what you have is Russian forces fighting against Ukrainian forces along this line that runs generally southwest to northeast across these two oblasts. And then uh, the the fighting is in, it has now, as you point out, been pretty much fixed. That was not the case 2014, 2015. There were back and forth battles, um, intensive combat um, that didn't clearly involve uh, Russian forces, both special operations and regular troops. Um, so the thing that makes the prospect of a an inv- of a continued invasion different is that the Russians would not be able to hide behind this separatist force uh, if they progressed further west. If they went into Kiev, this would be very clearly uh, a combat between the Russian Federation and the government, the troops of the government of Ukraine. And that region, the uh, kind of the Donbas, that's the region that heavily supported Yanukovych when uh, he was in power. The Russian line or the Russian perspective is that is that they are culturally more aligned with Russians. But politically, they are in essence. I mean, how do how do we understand this really as a civil war? And how does that affect what the what an occupation of Ukraine and the risks for Putin? How, do, how does that change that that calculus? Yeah, I mean, there there are people who have been quoted in the news recently who are, are with much greater expertise on eastern Ukraine than I do. So I'm I'm you know I'm speaking more in generalities here. But the um, it is true that the populations, particularly in the eastern parts of Donetsk and Luhansk, are significantly pro-Russian. Um, they, they were kind of pushing on an open door when they uh, when they effectively seized the, the that terrain in eastern Ukraine. Um, and there are pockets of Russian speakers, uh, people who have affiliation with Russia. A lot of Ukrainians have Russian relatives um, all the way west of Kiev. So, you know, this is these are people that have a common background. They, there are two different languages, but Ukrainians, uh, most Ukrainians also speak Russian uh, and often speak it as their first language. So there are a lot of commonalities that Vladimir Putin obviously wants to play up on. Uh, and he uh, reminds people frequently uh, that at least in his mind, Ukraine and Russia have a very close cultural relationship. Uh, and he can count on that support in Crimea and in the very far corner of the Southeast. But as you push West, as you move further away from that little uh, kind of enclave, the population becomes uh, a little more mixed. Uh, his support is less certain. And then as you get to Kiev and further west, it becomes much, uh, much less pro-Russian, much more uh, Ukrainian nationalist. So his his prospects for controlling the country, the, the, the ability to play up on the differences between Ukrainians who support Russia and Ukrainians who are Ukrainian nationalists decreases uh, as you move further west. And Ben, this kind of gets at the focus of your piece, Troop to Task, A Russian Invasion of Ukraine. You alluded to it at the beginning. It's not the invasion so much that intrigues you and drives your analysis, but the occupation. Why is that the focus of analysis in your piece? Would be a cakewalk. I mean, I think the Russians will take casualties. Some of the Ukrainians will fight. We don't know the degree to which um, the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian population will try to you know fight back and and, and stop the Russians, uh, but there will be casualties. But in general, the Russians are widely acknowledged to have overwhelming capability. Um, they're operating very close to their own border. 
next to the Western Military District. They have um, approximately 150,000 troops uh, with modern equipment, um, and they have you know good military capability. So they can seize if they want to, probably all of Ukraine. Um, and you know military operations in in that region are easy uh, in one respect in that it's open flat country, more difficult in that it's big swaths of open flat country. And there are, you know, um, there's mud and all sorts of other challenges there. So let's assume that the Russians can push all the way to the Dnieper River and seize Kiev, seize, uh, in my in my scenario, just Kharkov to the, and then to the south. Um, then then what? And that, and so I, I thought that that was missing from some of the contemporary analysis. You know that we well, there's a lot of really great insight into how the invasion would play out, but not as much on what would happen next. And the Russians have a pretty shaky uh, history when it comes to uh, occupying territory and counterinsurgency. And they don't have a lot of recent experience trying to control the, the, terror, the size of the uh, occupied territory that they would be biting off, even in kind of the modest scenario that I propose. Because the question of whether Russia invades and how that would happen, uh, that question shines the brightest. Uh, but perhaps being an intelligence officer in a prior lifetime, your attention goes to some of the thornier questions that come after that, uh, that those of us who are involved in the global war on terror have had to face. You use the troop to task analysis, uh, the definition of that. It's matching the suitable number and quality of personnel and equipment to a unit's mission essential task. Tell me a little bit about your method. Yeah, I, I applied traditional military planning methodology along with intelligence preparation of the environment. So I kind of put two two skills together. Um, that there are great open source manuals provided by the U.S. military. I didn't. There's nothing secret about this process. And basically, you're trying to look at the challenge you have, look at the amount of terrain, the population, the threat. Um, put those things together and try to figure out how many troops it would take to secure that terrain. And I, I presented uh, the Russians with three likely threats. I, I kind of, I, I didn't, I touched on, but didn't really get into detail on what a NATO conventional military counterattack would look like, because there's almost no chance that NATO would try to, or could even um, successfully mount a counterattack. So uh, I, I kind of, again, briefly referenced that and then pushed it off. So what the Russians have to worry about here are three things. One is a Ukrainian-backed insurgency, potentially also backed by NATO unconventional warfare operations, where they would be trying to conduct sabotage, um, build an insurgency from the inside to make the occupation more difficult, um, conducting sabotage, attacking, killing high-value targets like Russian officers. The second threat uh, would be uh, from uh, controlling the population uh, and uh, that's incredibly tricky. Um, and now we're talking about civil military operations. Uh, there are going to be refugees. You, you know, if you look at interviews with Ukrainians, they, they, they said, we'll stay here until it's time to go and then we're going to leave. So there will be potentially millions of refugees flowing through the occupied territory that greatly complicates the Russian uh, Russian operations. They're going to have to feed these people um, as their uh, lines of communication get cut off. Um, and then um, 
an insurgency, uh, a homegrown insurgency in the areas that they occupy. So troop to task uh, analysis looks at the perimeter. Um, how would you control that border space? Um, how many troops would it take to control each seg segment of border against infiltration? Um, and I went down into detail and then kind of extrapolated up. And then civil military operations and, and control of the interior, how would you control the, the roadways? You know, as as the United States uh, discovered in Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, controlling a rear area in, in an occupation is extraordinarily difficult and keeping the roads open requires potentially thousands of troops. So that's a challenge. And then how do you control the cities? How do you keep a city like Kharkiv, which has perhaps 1.7 million people from uh, being kind of a hotspot? like Fallujah was uh, in uh, in Iraq or, uh, you know, pick your city in Afghanistan, you know, so and cities can eat troops, right? That requires a lot more concentration of forces. Um, so the troop to task analysis goes through each one of these spaces and, and looks at what it would cost. And that's a fascinating approach to this. And you're right. It is a gap in larger media coverage. And so you've identified these three areas, the unconventional warfare threat, uh, the responsibility of the sort of you break it, you buy it responsibility of controlling the populace. And then finally, the possibility of an insurgency developing at the grassroots. And this isn't Afghanistan. This is a very sophisticated by comparison country where all three of these challenges are of a much greater magnitude. I want to switch a little bit and say, have you done like a center of gravity critical vulnerability analysis on Russia at this stage in the scenario? What do you think they are? Look, the, the Russians get a lot of credit for improving their military uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union, and particularly since Vladimir Putin came into power. I mean, over the last 20 years, they have professionalized their force to some extent. Uh, they've done a really good job uh, using mercenaries and special operations forces in ways that we do um, in operations abroad. But they haven't solved all of their problems. And one of the major issues that they have is that a significant portion of the Russian military is a conscript force. Uh, these are one-year conscripts. It's a forced conscription. It's not, you know, like all conscriptions, it's non-voluntary. And there is a presidential decree. It's not a law. It's a decree that 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 Putin signed that said he will not deploy conscript forces except in extreme circumstances, in large part because there's the potential for significant social blowback at home in Russia, as there was during the Soviet period, during the, Afghan the war in Afghanistan, um, during the previous conflict in Ukraine. Uh, there, are, there are the mothers of Russia groups that are very sensitive to casualties and particularly to conscript casualties. There's no way he can avoid deploying conscripts to occupy uh, uh, this big swath of Ukraine. And, and just in my scenario alone, I estimate it's going to take him 83,000 troops plus another 83,000 in rotation to back them up over an extended period of time. That's about 160,000 troops. And keep in mind, the Russian ground force only has about 350,000 troops total. So you're talking over half of the Russian ground force just to secure uh, the parts of, of Ukraine that he seizes. And if he pushes to Kiev, then that, you know, it, it, the numbers escalate considerably. 
So what they do in those situations, when they've had to deploy large forces before, when they had to push people out into Syria, et cetera, they force the conscripts to sign contracts uh, you know, by threatening them, et cetera. But they're typically short term. Um, and so that is probably what's going to happen here. And that gives him a ticking clock. And it also opens a great vulnerability because if we can start eating away at that popular support back home for the war, which is already questionable, um, then then I think that is their center of gravity. I think that is their critical vulnerability. So over the past eight years since since Crimea, Ukraine has received a fair amount of lethal aid from the U.S. in the in the form of javelins and and Stinger missiles. Uh, these these man pads. They've kind of saturated the zone with these weapons. They're highly portable. Uh, how does that change the calculation for for Russia? I mean, it could be. I mean, almost exactly like Afghanistan, where uh, stingers really change the calculation for the Mujahideen against the uh, Soviet helicopter forces in Af- in Afghanistan. Do you see that lethal aid as as really being a problem for the Russians, or is just that the force differential is so great it's going to be minimal? And and the British too, right? The British have provided uh, right. a bunch of right. munitions, so apparently some pretty advanced uh, man pads, so man portable air defense systems. Um, look, to some extent, the the stinger, the impact of the stingers was a bit overblown, um, and it's not really clear that they had this kind of causal impact on the collapse of the of the Soviet operation there. I, I try to look at things holistically. And You're talking about re- retrospectively in Afghanistan. Retrospectively. Right, right, yeah. right. So right. if you look forward and you look at individual technologies, whether it's the Javelin missile, which is this, this really advanced American fire and forget anti-tank missile that's easy to use. We've already seen videos of Ukrainian soldiers practicing with them and hitting targets successfully. Um, lethal, you know, it can it can kill a, a Russian tank. Um, that's great. Um do we have them there in the numbers to push, you know, to keep an invasion at bay? No. Um, can can they be great harassing tools? Absolutely. Um, same well, thing well, with to, the to your point of, of of like basically, can could a resistance inflict enough damage to cause a a, a lack of popular support back home in in Russia? Yeah. I so the the real question for me is. It's not the equipment. It's not the tools. It's the people that are going to use the equipment and the tools. How many Ukrainians that say on camera, on YouTube videos, on news reports that they they tell the reporter that they're going to fight if the Russians invade? How many of them are actually going to do that? And how many of them are going to be there to pick up that javelin, to take that man pad, to go out into a field and shoot at a Russian helicopter that's flying over? Right. And that is is really a question that I don't think has yet been has been answered clearly. Uh, I have a separate report, a series of reports on will to fight, assessing will to fight, whether it's in this case the Russians or the Ukrainians, is a really difficult, time intensive process, and I have not seen a good analysis um, of will to fight for either side. You know, how much does it take to break the Russian will to fight? How many conscripts need to be need to come home in, in body bags? or be burned in mobile crematoriums before Putin decides he's had enough? And how many Ukrainians are going to be willing to risk their lives when they know that safety is just on the other side of, of the Dnieper River? Um, those are open questions. The question that will fight is a fascinating topic. And if I'm not mistaken, you've written some about it in the past, Ben. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got, I, when I was at Rand, I was at Rand for uh, about 12 and a half years. I just left last year. Um, we've got a, a couple of big reports on Will the Fight. We have models, we've done simulation, tabletop gaming. Um, and I just put a report out on the Will the Fight of the Iraqi Army uh, that, that shows how that can be done. That was a detailed analysis that took me a year. It can be done more quickly, you know, and you just lose quality with time. Um, so uh, it would be great to see someone attack that problem. It's an ineffable thing. I mean, it's it's there with morale, the fighting spirit, the will to fight. It's it's hard to put a finger on it or understand it, especially at such a uh, a big picture level that we're talking about. Uh, but one of the elements has to be popular support back home. You alluded to it earlier. I read some polling data uh, a week old by this point, but it said less than 5% of Russians are ready to participate in a war and only 20% of Russians are currently following the standoff. Uh, what do you make of that data point? There is actually a surprising amount of information on Russian popular support and civil military relations uh, and Russian will to fight. And we've done a one, you know, the RAND team uh, now led by Mike McNerney, they've done a pretty decent amount of work on Russian will to fight. Um, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, and, you know, I, the question is where the polls were taken, right? So I think if they were urban, you get you get a different answer in an urban area than you do in a, in a rural area that might be more tightly controlled by Putin's party. But um, the, 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 uh, the, the real challenge there is, is, um, understanding the key factors that are going to decide whether or not they fight. Um, and you know, that whole, that whole series of studies started because we proposed a project called breaking Russian will. Uh, and the general that we proposed it to said, Oh, you, you, you can't break Russian will. And that's a, that's an assumption, right? And that's really what we go into these problems with is our assumptions. Oh, the Ukrainians will fight. Now the Russians, the Russians aren't going to break. They never break. Well, 5.7 million Soviet soldiers were captured or surrendered during World War II. They do break. Uh, Russian mercenaries broke and ran in Libya recently. Um, they broke and ran in Syria when they had to fight Americans. Um, so, you know, that to me, one of the most interesting things that if Putin does invade, that's about to happen, is that they're going to be exposed. You know, it's one thing to conduct training and exercises and look threatening and have black face masks and and all sorts of, you know, kind of scary things that the Russians like to do when you're behind your border. It's another thing entirely when you are operating in enemy territory and you're exposed um, and your troops are posting things on social media and you're using regular forces, not special forces, not highly paid mercenaries. Um, I think if Putin does invade they're, they're he's exposing himself to significant risk. So again, the piece is called a troop troop to task, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, very detailed military operational analysis uh, that probably can't be found elsewhere. Another question that comes to mind, Ben, is your priority intelligence requirements at this stage. We've talked about questions that have not yet been answered. I'm sure you've got a list of them. Maybe you've got them tacked on your wall to keep yourself reminded of what you're looking for. But I wonder off the top of your head after working through this analysis, what are your so-called PIRs? So if I'm the Ukrainians, I want to know to what extent have the Russians truly divested themselves of this centralized approach to warfare that they had during the Soviet period. 
and 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 that there's some truth to this um, kind of assumption that we had during the Cold War that the Soviet military, even though it was ostensibly designed to be adaptable, really wasn't, and that if you could kill the commander of a unit, that the troops below them weren't really mentally prepared or trained to be adaptable, and they would be far less effective. So you could kind of cut the head off. The Russians have gotten a lot of credit over the last 20 years for becoming more adaptable and for divesting control down. But our sample size has been relatively small. I want to know to what extent that's true, because you know, am I going to start investing in killing targets if I'm an insurgent? Am I going to kill a command and control center and at what level and, and what effect is that going to have? And if I'm the Russians, um, I, and, and frankly, if I'm NATO as well, I want to know if the Ukrainians are going to fight. I want to really understand Ukrainian will to fight. And that is ostensibly an intelligence task. And it may have been done behind closed doors. I don't know, but I haven't seen anything publicly about it. The last area that I, I want to talk about is really uh, looking at the disposition of forces. The Russian military has invested enormously in both in, in electronic warfare in terms of trying to counter the technological advantages of, of, the, of Western forces uh, and also in kind of non-conventional psychological operations, misinformation, use of social media – they, you know, both in terms of how they 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 structure their forces are are heavily integrated, more integrated, I would say, than than U.S. forces in terms of how they have access to both on the battlefield that EW and as well as the kind of off the battlefield, making this case for you know that that directly affects that will to fight that that you're talking about. Um, how does that Russian history of the use of misinformation? Um, you know, everything from, you know, social media campaigns to, you know, spoofing electronic signals to, you know, uh, everything in between. H how does that really enter into how you, you see this final calculus? Yeah, that'll help. Um, <laughs> it will, they will, I mean, in, in the invasion, right? I mean, they will use deception to cover their operation. They will take down communications networks. They will throw out all sorts of propaganda messages to confuse the West, to muddy their operation and to make it less clear that they've done something bad. Um, and they will use it to play on the minds of Ukrainians in order to get them to be more susceptible to, to the occupation. But it's not magic. Um, and I think our own experiences with information operations show that it's, it's, it's really difficult. Um, it's one thing to target an enemy military force with information operations and electronic warfare and, and, uh, and when you have a concentrated known target, it's much more difficult to try to influence an entire population. And while the Russians have had success with that, including within the United States, um, it will be hard for them. And um, like the technology we brought up before, the Javelin missiles and, and the man pads and everything, it's not magic on either side. Um, and I think that, again, you know, we, we, we always elevate our opponents before a war. We, if you recall, prior to the first Gulf War in 1991, the Iraqis were like 10 feet tall and we were going to take 30,000 casualties. Uh, my platoon was supposed to take 75% casualties and, and we didn't take any. Um, and so, you know, after the war, there was kind of this big uh, letdown and a realization that we had overestimated their capabilities. I think some of that's going on here. I think we're really overestimating the degree to which these the, the Russian troops are um, almost kind of superhuman. 
They're just people. So to sum it up, do you think that Putin has underestimated the risks of exposing himself to this in, in, in the strategy that he appears to be pursuing? My favorite analyses of, of, you know, kind of what will Putin do are come from the people that watch him full time and say, we don't even think Putin knows what he will do. Um, and as to what he's taking in, uh, there have been a couple of great pieces written recently about the kind of closed bubble he's created around himself with kind of you know, more hawkish advisors. So there's a pretty good chance that if there's an assessment like the one that I did saying, hey, the occupation is going to be really difficult, there's a decent chance that it hasn't crossed his desk, uh, which would be a shame because I think it would it would be a great deterrent. We will have to end it there for today. Ben Connable, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Great talking with you. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters, Editor David Craig, and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John